But you can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Joshua, chapter 7. Joshua, chapter 7. Uh, we'll read, look at the entire chapter this evening. I'll begin reading at verse 1. Uh, it is Achan's sin. I call it treachery and wrath. So we'll begin reading at verse 1. But the children of Israel committed a trespass according to the accursed things. Brachan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed things. So the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Beth-Avon, on the east side of Bethel, and spoke to them, saying, Go up and spy out the country. So the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, do not let all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not weary all the people there, for the people of Ai are few. So about three thousand men went up uh, there from the people, but they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai struck down about thirty-six men, for they chased them from before the gate as far as Shebarim, and struck them down on the descent. Therefore the hearts of the people melted and became like water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. He and the elders of Israel, they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? Oh, that we had been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. O oh Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns its back before its enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear it and surround us. And cut off our name from the earth. Then what will you do for your great name? So the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why do you lie thus on your face? Israel has sinned and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they, excuse me. They have even taken some of the accursed things and have both stolen and deceived. They have also put it among their own stuff. Therefore, the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turn their backs before their enemies because they have become doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with you anymore unless you destroy the accursed from, uh, accursed from among you. Get up, sanctify the people, and say, Sanctify yourselves for tomorrow, because thus says the Lord God of Israel. There is an accursed thing in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought according to your tribes. And it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes shall come according to families. And the family which the Lord takes shall come by households. And the household which the Lord takes shall come man by man. Then it shall be that he who is taken with the accursed thing shall be burned with fire. He and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, because he has done a disgraceful thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel by their tribes. And the tribe of Judah was taken. He brought the clan of Judah. And he took the family of the Zarhites. And he brought the family of the Zarhites man by man, and Zabdi was taken. Then he brought his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Now Joshua said to Achan, my son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord God of Israel. Make confession to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua and said, indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. And there they are hidden in the earth in the midst of my tent with the silver under it. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent 
And there it was, hidden in his tent with the silver under it. And they took them from the midst of the tent, brought them to Joshua, to all the children of Israel, laid them out before the Lord. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the garment, the wedge of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that he had. And they brought them to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. So all Israel stoned him, stoned him with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. Then they raised over him a great heap of stones till, uh, still there to this day. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his ang anger. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Achor to this day. Amen. Well, Joshua is a positive foray for the people of God into the promised land. Judges is usually the negative uh, historical record uh, of Israel in the land. And Samuel and Kings aren't great as well. Uh, but Joshua, for the most part, is a positive sort of entrance for the people. They seem to do what Yahweh says. They seem to be retaining the land. Uh, they seem to be doing good according to what Yahweh had said. And then we come to chapter 7. And right after the, the, the marching of Jericho, right after the taking of Jericho as the first fruits for the people in the land, we see one man can't keep his hands off the gold. One man brings uh, uh, the destruction or brings the wrath of God upon the people of Israel. And remember, Joshua and the rest of the historical books are based upon or founded upon Deuteronomy, functions as that foundation. God has entered into covenant with Israel concerning life in the land, and it was a covenant of works, an external covenant concerning what would be a good life if they did what was right, but they would be kicked out of the land, kicked out away from the presence of God if they did not do what Yahweh had said. But also remember, too, Joshua is a fulfillment of the promise God made to Abraham to give Abraham a seed and a land, and the people have entered into that land. And now will they retain it based upon what Yahweh has said? And certainly the book is structured around the idea of land, uh, entering the land, conquering the land, dividing the land, and retaining the land. That comes from Dale Ralph Davis. And we're in the section concerning conquering the land uh, this evening. So they've entered it. Now they're conquering the land. Uh, but now there are problems after that inaugural victory. How quickly victory can give way to disaster. And disaster is a result of Israel's disobedience according to the terms of the Old Covenant. So the problem here is disobedience to what Yahweh has said. Last time, we saw the problem was being devoted to destruction, and that was primarily for the Canaanites, those who were Gentiles, those who were unclean, those who were outside the people of God. But now this problem is on the people of God. Now this problem is on Israel because they disobeyed and did not do what Yahweh had said. And so in Joshua 7, we see Achan's treachery leads to God's anger because he took from the accursed thing. So treachery and wrath that comes upon the people through the sin of Achan. And we'll look at this idea or this topic under two headings this evening. First of all, we'll see the wrath of Yahweh, verses 1 through 9. Then secondly, we'll see the treachery of Achan, verses 20 through 26. So the wrath of Yahweh and the treachery of Achan. So let's first look at the wrath of Yahweh in verses 1 through 9. And notice we see the wrath proper in verses 1 through 5. 
and we see the specific uh, issue in verse 1. But the children of Israel committed a trespass according to the accursed things. Again, this is in the context of Jericho and its defeat. Uh, God said in verses 18 and 19, and, 24, and, and then we see them it burned up in 24 of chapter 6, do not take from the accursed thing. If you take from the accursed thing, if you take that thing that is devoted to destruction, you will then be an accursed thing. You will then be under the wrath of God. Well, Achan just couldn't keep his hands off what was there. Achan had to grab it because he coveted, as we read and as we will see, and took from those accursed things. And this is the reason for Yahweh's wrath. It was Israel's sin. Verse 1, but the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed things. Remember in Israel, if one sins, they all sin. If one violates the covenant, they all violate the covenant. We saw in Deuteronomy 29, verses 20 through 22, as Moses is driving home the importance of covenant, driving home the importance of keeping that covenant, one of the things that he says is, yes, the one who commits the offense will receive the heaps of, bless, of, of curses upon him, but Israel also will uh, too. So that people will say, why is it all these curses have come upon the land? And the point was to drive home the fact, if you sin, you're going to ruin it for everybody else. We also see this in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 18. One sinner ruins much good. And Achan certainly is an example of that. He is the one who sins. Israel is a theocracy, though. And when one sins, they all sin. So they, they commit treachery. They commit uh, an unfaithful act. It is disobedience regarding these accursed things. So Israel does it. For, and the reason why for Achan the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, he took of the accursed things. Now that genealogy will become important when God finds him out. When God figures out, you can't hide from God. And as we see, as God gives his method for figuring that out, it goes from, uh, it goes in that order. Ju uh, Judah to, to, to Zerah, to Zabdi, to Carmi, and finally to Achan. So he takes it, and the result is, so the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. You see, this is important. This frames the entire narrative. This frames everything that comes after. Uh, many commentators, Davis points this out, and I did read that in a few of them, they like to highlight that the reason that they were routed at I is because of their overconfidence. Now, it may be true they were overly confident, but the reason is that God's wrath was upon them. And perhaps there is a chiasm that is bookendings throughout the chapter that drives to the center point. And the center point is 12b. Neither will I be with you anymore unless you destroy the accursed thing from among you. The reason they didn't take out I is because God was not with them. Because God was angry with them. And as a result, they couldn't take out this puny, tiny, little Town. And the reason is verse 1. So the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. And so, verse 2. Again, we have this information. Joshua does not. As far as Joshua is concerned, we have 627. So the Lord was with Joshua and his frame spread throughout all the country. You know, there's a lot of but nows in scripture that are wonderful. 
you know, the wrath of the, 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 but now that the righteousness of God apart from the law is manifest. Romans 3, 21. This is not a good but. Uh, so the Lord was with Joshua. Things are going well. They took out Jericho. But the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding this very thing. So let me come to verses 2 through 5. See how the Bible builds suspense? And you're kind of like, my goodness, they have no idea what's coming. What's going to happen uh, at the, the, the city of Ai? So verse 2. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai. I know some people say A-I. In Hebrew, it says hi, uh, but I, Dale Ralph Davis calls it I, so I'm going to go with what he says. So it's I, I, which is bed beside Beth Avon on the east side of Bethel. And he spoke to them saying, go up and spy out the country. Again, reconnaissance isn't bad. They did reconnaissance uh, concerning Jericho. That's the situation with Rahab. Uh, so uh, reconnaissance isn't bad. So they, the men went up, they spy out I. In verse 3, and they returned to Joshua and said to him, do not let the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack I. Don't worry all the people there, for the people are few. They're a small town. We don't need to tire the entire army. Just send a few to take out this small, tiny city that is in our way. But again, we have verse 1. The anger of the Lord burned against the people. And we see that manifest in verses 4 and 5. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people, but they fled from before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai struck down about 36 men, for they chased them from before the gate as far as Shibari, and struck them down on the descent. Therefore, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. This small city has struck them down. This small town has struck down 36 men of Israel, and, and they turn the Israel to turn their backs on their enemies and flee and run away. With the result, that now Israel's hearts have melted. Is the people of Israel have melted? Now they are fearful. Now they are scared. Remember, that was one of the things that Rahab said. We we heard about what Yahweh did. We heard about his power in Egypt. We heard how he parted the sea, and our hearts melted. The people crossed the Jordan in chapter 5:1. The Amorites and the Canaanites, their hearts are melting. They are the ones in fear. So we can't miss the reversal. The people who are outside of Israel, the people who are outside the favor of God, they were the ones that are fearful. Now Israel is under that wrath. Now Israel is the one whose hearts are melted before their enemies and have become like nothing. So what does Joshua do? He intercedes for the people. And again, Joshua is perplexed. He has no idea why this happened. There was the, the river, the Jordan River, which was a great feat that God showed his might. And as a sign and assurance, I'll fight for you. They took out Jericho, as the Lord said, in an unconventional way. And everything was looking great. His fame spread. They go to this little place called I. And they get routed. And so he's perplexed. And so verse 6. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. So clothing, a torn dust on their heads, sign of mourning, a sign of, of, of sackcloth and ashes, a sign of, of concern. And so he goes to the ark of the Lord. He goes to the sign of Yahweh's presence. Now he can't go into the most holy place. 
But the point is, he's going to God. Remember in chapter 4, we saw how the ark went before them. And then chapter 6, how often the ark was marching before them. Remember, it was a sign of Yahweh's presence with them. So where does he go? He goes to Yahweh. He goes to, 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 uh, to in our new covenant language, to the throne of grace. He's going to Yahweh and he's asking, Yahweh, what is going on? What is happening here? The Ark of the Covenant was a sign of Yahweh's presence, but it was also the place where Yahweh revealed, Yahweh ruled, and Yahweh reconciled as well. And so he goes to the only place that he knows in his plight. And he says in verse 10, Lord God, why have you, uh, sorry, verse 7, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? Oh, that we've been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. If there's a covetousness, Lord, if we were discontent on the other side, why bring us over? This is similar to, but different than Israelites murmuring and complaining uh, in Numbers 14. That was, a, that was a complaining of unbelief. That was a complaining, as Davis says, about God. That was a complaining. God had said to them, you're going to take the land. I will fight for you. Don't be afraid of the giants in the land. And what do they do? They go spy out the land. Ten say there's giants in the land. Run and hide. And so what do they do? They all run and hide. And they don't trust in Yahweh. This is still a prayer of faith, but it's in a time of despair. He's perplexed. He doesn't understand. He doesn't know what's going on. Why are we doing this? Why did you bring us over? What is the purpose? Don't we have times like that as well? Not to moralize the text, but we have moments where we don't, most of us don't have verse one in life. Most of us don't have the section where it says Yahweh's anger burned against the people of God. We don't know why certain things are happening. Now, I don't know that you're going through a difficult time because the anger of God is burning against you, but you get the point. We don't know God's ways. We don't understand his secret counsels. And so what does Joshua do? He is perplexed. Uh, what is going on? So he cries out to him. Why bring us over to deliver us here if it's just to destroy us? And he is appealing to the promises of God, isn't he? God, look what you did with Jordan. Why, why do all that if you're just going to destroy us in the land? Look, look what you did there for us. And then he also appeals to God's name in verses 8 and 9. He says, oh, Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns its back before its enemies? How am I supposed to explain this? How am I supposed to make sense of this? How am I supposed to explain it to the people and the Canaanites around us? For the verse 9, for the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land, they will hear and surround us and cut off our name from the earth. Then what will you do for your great name? They understood that their name was connected, or he understood that Israel's name was connected with Yahweh's name. And Yahweh had said he would bring them in. Yahweh said he would fight for them. And so he's appealing to Yahweh's character. He's a remembering what Yahweh had done. And he's a remembering Yahweh's promises. And he's appealing to his character. And what of your name? What should happen? What of who you are? Uh, 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 what shall I say concerning you? And what shall your reputation be if you... Leave us and forsake us now. When you said you would never leave us nor forsake us. Now he's definitely not Moses, but it's similar to what Moses does in Exodus 32. 
And in Numbers 14, Moses pleads on their behalf, doesn't he? After their unbelief. And God says, I'll pardon them, but that first generation is going to die in the, in the wilderness. They're going to wander away from the, the promised land. They're going to wander outside the promised land. But, uh, but God does pardon them, Numbers chapter 14. So it's similar to that. Exodus 32 and Numbers 14 uh, was in my mind. Uh, some like many of the commentators mentioned that as well. But he's pleading. He's perplexed. Yahweh, what is going on here? Why is this occurring? What is taking place? Why have they, has I routed us? Now, thankfully, under the new covenant, and when we are in Christ, we can never be devoted to destruction, right? The new covenant can never be broken. That's why it's far greater than the old. That's why Jeremiah prophesies about it in Jeremiah 31. It's not going to be like the covenant which they broke uh, the, the, my, the fathers before us. And But under the new covenant, God's people can fall under God's fatherly displeasure because of our sin. We can never be cast out. We can never be tough. We can never lose the benefits and blessings of being part of that new covenant. But we can fall under God's fatherly displeasure. There is that reality. And it teaches us the seriousness of sin. It teaches us what our sin deserves, God's wrath and curse. And thankfully, we don't have God's wrath and curse because of Lord Jesus, of our Lord Jesus Christ. But it teaches us to take sin seriously in hebrews 13 again it's come up or sorry hebrews 12 it's come up in god's providence a lot in the past several weeks about the importance of our god who 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 chastens us who deals with us as sons as as any human father should and how our father knows what is good for us that no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. God's people can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can't lose the Holy Spirit, but we can grieve the Holy Spirit, Ephesians chapter 4. And so we must understand this tension. You see, we are forgiven in Christ. Our sins are covered in him, but we must fight in our sanctification, our Christian walk to put to death. The old man, right? But we also must be gracious with others as they're doing it and recognize God's grace towards us. There is that tension. We're forgiven. There's mercy. God is good. We need to be gracious. But we also must understand its seriousness. That's why we must watch and pray. We must be on guard. We must have wisdom, as Paul says in Colossians chapter 4. God's people commit individual sins and sometimes individual sins that affect people corporately and publicly, but there is that reality that there can be times that we have God's sensible countenance removed from us because we are under his fatherly displeasure. Now, there is also the ecclesiastical reality of God's fatherly displeasure as well, and there is the ecclesiastical reality that though, uh, that churches, local churches, can degenerate into synagogues of Satan. Revelation uh, chapters 2 and 3 comes to mind. Local churches can lose their lampstands. Local churches can degenerate away from uh, being a part of the one true church. Remaining corruption affects us as individuals, 
remaining corruption affects the church as well. The sins of individuals that can escalate, the sins of churches that remove true worship, the sins of churches that disobey to do what God has called her to do. Jesus says that, that a church can have its lampstand removed in chapters two and three. That's why by God's grace, we must strive as we are able, obviously not perfectly, to do what God has said in his word. And that is to preach his word, to worship according to his word, to appreciate uh, uh, the blessings of his word, even if the world doesn't like it. Even if the world and people are uh, heap up men who scratch their itches, heap up men who teach them uh, that uh, teach them things that take them away from sound doctrine. Uh, if they teach them about emotionalism and teach them about experience rather than the truth, you see, God says, Paul says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. When Paul is leaving the church at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, I commit you to God and the word of his grace. What that's what he's saying to the shepherds, the elders, the overseers, their purpose was to preach the word. Their purpose was to guard the sheep from wolves that might come in. That is the church's task. That is the church's purpose, is to preach Christ and him crucified, that sinners might be saved and saints might be edified. And if churches become... Uh, uh, all about bells and whistles. And even some, there are many good churches that still have bells and whistles. But if it especially degenerates away from truth, it's more about experience rather than the, the truth of the hypostatic union. It doesn't really matter what you think about Jesus, or it doesn't really matter what you think about the Trinity. It doesn't really matter those sorts of things. Then it perhaps is degenerating into a synagogue of Satan. And that can and most assuredly does happen. Now, thankfully, there's also comfort in our Father's forgiveness. Remember the Lord's Prayer? What does the preface say? Our Father who art in heaven. And by the time we get to the fifth petition, what does it say? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. See, when the blessings of the new covenant and being found in Christ as we are adopted because of Christ. And the blessings of adoption teach us, one, we have an inheritance that's unfading, undefiled in the heavenly places, undeserving that God has given to us in Christ, but also we have access to the Father. We can cry out to him by the power of the Spirit, Galatians 4, Romans 8, because of our Father's forgiveness. Yes, we can fall under his displeasure, we can find our forgiveness in him as well because of Christ and what he has done. So that is the wrath of Yahweh. Let's then look secondly at the treachery of Achan, verses 10 through 26. So Joshua cries out to God and the Lord answers. And we see the reason is Israel has transgressed. This also is a kindness of God, isn't it? Here's what sin is. Here's what's happened. Here's how we're going to deal with it. And so we see in verse 10. So the Lord said to Joshua, get up, make haste. We have to deal with this twice. He says, get up in verse 10 and verse 13. He says, get up. Why do you lie thus on your face? Time to deal with the issue. Time to deal with the situation. Your penitence is over. 
And let's be honest, as Henry will comment, I'll read Henry in just a second. It wasn't Joshua's fault. <laughs> yeah, Joshua's part of Israel, but it's not his fault. Uh, Henry says, no doubt Joshua did well to humble himself before God and mourn as he did under the tokens of his displeasure. But now God told him it was enough. He would not have him continue any longer in the me that melancholy posture. For God delights not in the grief of penitence when they afflict their souls further than as it qualifies them for pardon and peace. The days even after that, uh, even of that morning must be ended. Get up, stop mourning. Here's what's happened. Verse 11. Israel has sinned and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. He goes on to explain exactly what it was. For they have even taken some of the accursed things that Haram devoted to destruction and have both stolen and deceived. And they've put it among their own stuff. They have taken what was devoted to destruction. Again, we know that. And God knows that. We cannot hide from God. God is omniscient. God sees. God knows exactly the deepest, darkest recesses of our mind, where our most wicked thoughts rear their ugly heads. God sees all those things. People might not see all those things, but God knows everything and sees all. And Achan tried to hide from God, but he could not do that very thing. And we haven't got to Achan yet, but Yahweh is just saying at this point that Something has happened. They have deceived. They have stolen from me. It was a first fruits to God, devoted to him, given to him, devoted to destruction. But also some of it was taken and consecrated and brought into the treasury of the Lord. Now, many commentators point out that maybe there is a conceptual connection with Acts chapter 5, with Ananias and Sapphira. What was the issue there? They lied. They, gave, they said, I'm going to give this to God, and they held some back. It wasn't the amount that they gave. It was that they said, we're going to sell this property. We're going to give this all of this money, but rather than giving all of it, they took it back. They could have just said, here's the amount we're giving. We're going to keep this. I mean, but they, they lied against the Holy Spirit, and it struck the early church with fear. That was what its purpose was. Now, God's not going to strike down you know, everybody who does that very thing because there's mercy and forgiveness in Christ. But as the early church was in its infancy, it was a good lesson for them. And the same thing is true here for Israel. They've entered into the land. Don't take from the accursed things that Yahweh has said. It's a good lesson for Israel as they've entered into the promised land and are going to seek to retain it by way of covenant keeping. So they take it. Uh, so back to Joshua. Verse 12. Therefore, the children of Israel could not stand. This is the reason why. Could not stand before their enemies, but turn their backs before their enemies because they have become doomed to destruction. As Yahweh said, as Joshua said in verses 17 and 18. And again, we come to the heart of the whole section. Neither will I be with you anymore. Neither will I be with you anymore. Now, again, brethren, we believe God is omnipresent and is everywhere. But we're talking about the favorable dwelling with God. And you see, God cannot dwell with sin, can he? God cannot dwell with that which is unholy. That's why we approach him through Christ. That's why in the Old Testament, they approached him with blood. 
and that blood foreshadowed Christ that we might enter and dwell with him because of Jesus Christ. That's another blessing that we take for granted, dear brethren. We don't take sin as seriously as we should. We don't appreciate the blessing it is that God dwells with us. We really are, in God, as God's people individually, the temple of the Holy Spirit. We really are, as the church gathered, the temple that God is building. We're going to see that in Ephesians 2 on Sunday evening. We really are that. God really does dwell with us. God really is with us. I don't see him. I don't smell him. But I believe that he is real. And I believe, as his word says, that he is absolutely with us. Should we not then have reverence and awe as we enter into his house? Should we have reverence and awe as we worship him? Should we not recognize that we are not our own, but we are in Christ Jesus, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6? But here, neither will I be with you unless you destroy the accursed thing from among you. Again, Israel, because of the terms of the covenant, could be taken away from the favorable presence of God. And their sin would, would remove them from that favorable presence as they would, uh, as they'll be devoted to destruction, unless they destroy the accursed thing from among you. So God reveals what the problem is, and God also provides the plan to get them out of it. Verses 13 through 15. Get up, sanctify the people. Get up, stop sulking, deal with it. Get up. Prepare the people for what's about to happen. Say, sanctify yourselves for tomorrow, because thus says the Lord God of Israel. There is an accursed thing in your midst. O Israel, you cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. I would just, it'd be interesting to be a fly on the wall in Achan's house as all this is happening. <laughs> as he starts talking about the accursed thing, and then as we'll see which household uh, is revealed. And it shall be, verse 14, that the tribe which the Lord takes shall come according to families. Now, how exactly Yahweh does this, we don't necessarily know. He'll suggest that perhaps it is by casting lots. Uh, but uh, one commentator points out that taking uh, refers to the idea of being taken in battle. Maybe it's a bit of a stretch, but perhaps it further illustrates God's anger toward Israel. They are an enemy that he's dealing with. But uh, but it, suffice it to say, the main idea is that this is how he's going to figure out the issue and who it is, or how he's going to reveal who that is to Israel. It shall be that with the tribe which the Lord takes shall come according to families, and the family which the Lord takes shall come by households, and the household which the Lord takes shall come man by man. Verse 15, that it shall be that he who is taken with the accursed thing, he shall be burnt with fire. He and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, because he has done a disgraceful thing in Israel. Again, our modern delicate minds struggle with these Old Testament. I love saying delicate a lot because we have delicate minds. I mean, we've grown soft in our modern times. We can't stand the wrath of God or, or the, the idea that Achan's, Achan and his family are going to be burned up. But know what? Notice why. It's because he transgressed. And it wasn't just him and his individual sin but he brought a whole heap of wrath upon all the people he got 36 men killed with his wickedness see he's not just some innocent bystander and as we're going to see with his family 
Perhaps some commentators highlight too that uh, they're like, well, maybe it wasn't his family there with some of the wording that's there, but others highlight, no, it was his family because they were perhaps culpable. You know, they, what's that giant bulge underneath the tent, dad? What's going on there? What is that? I mean, he's running into the tent. You know, he can't have hidden all that stuff, right? I mean, his family would have seen it. And so they're it's culpable. They're with him. And they shall be devoted to destruction, as Yahweh said in Genesis, or sorry, Joshua uh, chapter 6. So Yahweh lays out the plan. And then um, we see in verses 16 and following, he unfolds that plan. Again. It is showed the severe punishment shows how serious a sin it was. So verse 16. So Joshua rose early in the morning. I love the Bible. The Bible is just written so well in the suspense that builds. It's not just the book of truth. It's the best written book. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel by their tribes. And the tribe of Judah was taken. Okay. He brought the clan of Judah and he took the family of the Zarhites. See, again, we know, we know from verse one who it's going to be. And then we see further, and he brought the family of the Zarhites man by man, and Zabdi was taken. Then he brought his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. The Lord through Joshua figures out and shows and finds out the man in front of all the people of Israel. Now, it may have been the case, uh, I remember uh, when Pastor Butler taught on this years ago, uh, someone afterward mentioned the fact that perhaps uh, each moment gave Achan a time to come and confess. Now, eventually he does, he does confess because he's caught. <laughs> you know, I mean, you kind of have to when you're found out. And so uh, he's caught. And so Joshua in verse 19, my son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord of Israel and make confession to him and tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Now notice, it's a very serious charge, but in a lot of ways, it's also filled with grace. This is what Matthew Henry points out. Let's be honest, if I was in Joshua's shoes, I'd probably be like, what are you doing, you stupid moron? That's probably the first thing I would say, and I'd probably yell and lambast him. And, I mean, but Joshua's still being serious, but my son, you know, give glory to God, confess your sin. I mean, he's being very kind and very gracious, even if he is being serious. Henry says how he accosts him with great, the greatest mildness and tenderness that could be like a tr that could be like a true disciple of Moses. He might justly have called him thief and rebel, raka and now fool, but he called him son. He might have adjured him to confess, as the high priest did our blessed Savior, or threaten him with the torture to extort a confession. But for love's sakes, he rather beseeches him. I pray thee, make confession. This is an example to all not to insult over those that are in misery though they have brought themselves into it by their own wickedness. But to treat even offenders with the spirit of meekness, not knowing what we ourselves should have been and done if God had put us into the hands of our own counsels. Still serious, but still very gracious. My son, give God the glory. Acknowledge his justice. 
acknowledge his omniscience, give God glory in this situation, come and confess your sins. Uh, there is a similar sort of um, questioning in John 9, 24. It's with the blind man. He's before the Pharisees. The Pharisees say, give glory to God. Now, that instant, we know that the man didn't do anything wrong. It was to God. Christ was demonstrating his might and his power uh, before them. But they had this, perhaps, maybe they had this situation with Achan in mind. But give God the glory. Confess your sins. Tell me what you've done. Don't hide it from me. And that's exactly what he does. Verse 20. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I have done. And he's honest. I love when people are honest. Verse 21, when I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, and I coveted them and took them. Coveted them and took them. And there they are hidden in the earth in the midst of my tent with the silver under it. He makes a full confession. Yes, he's found out, but he does make a full confession, but there's still going to be consequences for his sin there can still be pardon as you see and we see in numbers 14 but there are still consequences that have to be dealt with so he confesses it i'm not going to go into all the intricate details and how much everything was because i don't really know but suffice it to say he saw what was god's he saw what was devoted to destruction and he took it he coveted he looked with his eyes he was idolatrous and he took it and after being found out he still owns it and then verse 22 so what do they do so Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent. And there it was, hidden in his tent with the silver under it. There it is. And they took them from the midst of the tent, brought them to Joshua, and to all the children of Israel, and laid them out before the Lord. Remember they had to do this uh, according to Deuteronomy, that when there's a punishment or a situation that has to be done in front of Israel, remember that's to deter other people from doing the same thing. I remember, uh, I think I've talked with someone on, on Sunday, I remember reading this years ago, or a couple years ago in a bio on John A. McDonald. When there were executions, it was in the square in Canada. You know why that was? So people saw what they did and didn't do that very thing. Families bring their kids to the execution. Mom and you know, children, don't do that. Otherwise, that's going to that's gonna happen to you. There's, there's a deterrent that needs to be there. And so the, 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 they, they lay out everything. Israel, they're all going to stone them together for the purpose of don't do what Achan does. So lays it, lays it all before Israel. Verse 24, then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the garment, the wedge of gold, everything, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, all that he had, and they brought them to the valley of Achor. Achor means trouble. And what did Achan do? He troubled them. And perhaps it is a play on Achan's name, Achor and Achan. That is, he brings trouble upon, Achan is the one who brings trouble. And Joshua said, verse 25, why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. And so all Israel stoned him with stones. So he's stoned and they burned them, all of them, with fire. After they'd stoned them, again, all of them with the stones. So he is destroyed. The accursed things are destroyed in the valley of Achor. Again, the family is culpable. He is the one who is burned up because of the thing that he did. Now, one commentator points out that perhaps there is a contrast with Rahab. 
I mean, Rahab, as we see in 6, verses 22 through 25, I mean, it's in the context, go get Rahab, but we're going to burn everything else. Rahab fled that by faith. Rahab found refuge in God by faith, and she actually fled. A Canaanite fled that uh, being devoted to destruction in Yahweh himself by way of faith. Uh, so they're stoned, they're burned, and then we have a, uh, we see Yahweh's wrath is appeased uh, in verse 26. And they raised over him a great heap of stones, still there to this day. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. So he, the wrath of God is turned away. Accursed things are destroyed by burning. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Achor to this day. A monument that signifies the destroying wrath of God, but also the turning away of his fierceness. Just like there was that monument in, uh, in the, with the rivers to remind the Israelites in the future of God's saving help to bring them across that river by his power. Monuments in Israel were important as reminders and remembrances. And so the same thing is true with this Valley of Achor, a reminder of God's wrath, but also a reminder that uh, his wrath was turned away. Now, uh, Achan's treachery will come back up in Joshua 22. Uh, when we get there, we'll see that as the eastern tribes travel back to their inheritance, uh, they set up a monument as a witness. Uh, the, the, the western tribes are like, is that a rival to the temple in Shiloh? And they go and they're ready for war. And they say, they, they engage in... Um, a good uh, conflict resolution, what happened, what's occurring, what's going on here. And one of the things they say, let, do not engage in this treachery uh, that, uh, the, at this time. So, same word used in Joshua 7. So, so again, some good things later on. They don't want to repeat what happens in Joshua 22. Other things happen later on that, in Judges that aren't great. But um, for now, Yahweh's anger is turned away. Now, in a new covenant sense, thankfully, God in his church does provide discipline. Again, many of the commentators point out the connection with church discipline, especially uh, as dealing with sin. In a modern, fallen, present evil age, it doesn't have to be modern, in the present evil age, churches are filled with sinners. I don't know if you knew that, <laughs> but the church is filled with members who still sin and church discipline has to be dealt with. And what we're talking about with church discipline is perpetual impenitence. People struggle with daily run of the mill sins every day. We're not talking about disciplining them for that thing, but we're talking about scandalous impenitence, scandalous issues, scandalous things that arise. They must be dealt with. Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Thessalonians 3, Titus chapter 3. God has set forth discipline in his church, and it must be a practice within the church of Christ for the purpose of purity, but also for the benefit of the one being disciplined, A, to restore them, or B, to give them over to Satan, that they might then be saved, that they might be treated as an unbeliever, that they might hear the word of the uh, word of the gospel and be changed. And thankfully, it really does work. Discipline is a tough thing, but God does help his people in discipline. And we see that in 2 Corinthians 2. 
The man who is forgiven in 2 Corinthians 2 is probably the man under discipline in 1 Corinthians 5. The man who had his father's wife, he finds forgiveness. You see, God does help his church with respect to discipline. Sin is serious. Sin is uh, a vile thing. And it must be dealt with in the church of Christ as issues arise. Now, there's patience involved, grace involved. We want to give people time to repent. We shouldn't be hasty or too harsh. That certainly can be a problem with discipline. Every, you know, every little sin can be viewed as a disciplinary offense. That's not what we're about. But on the other side of it, and this is probably more the issue in our modern times, People are way too lax about it. People are way too lax about discipline, way too lax about using it, uh, way too lax about exercising it in difficult situations. Davis says, somehow we find it convenient to forget the patient threats of Jesus, Revelation 2 and 3, the destructive power of the Spirit, Acts 5, and the direct commands of the apostles, 1 Corinthians 5, and 2 Thessalonians 3. Now, thankfully, there is our Christ. Christ has forgiven us of all our sins, has he not? The sins we have committed and the sins that we will commit. They are forgiven in him. And thankfully, the church has been saved from the doom of destruction. The church has been saved from, uh, from our sins. And we shall be presented holy and spotless on that day because of Christ, our bridegroom who cleanses us. And in him, we are washed. And thankfully, he was the one who went outside the camp. Thankfully, he was the one who was cut off before his people. Thankfully, he was the one who died in our stead. And Hebrews chapter 13 highlights this very thing uh, for us. Notice they bring even even in verse 24, they bring them outside the camp. Don't don't miss in the Bible that when Jesus is crucified, it's outside the city. But Hebrews 13 highlights this for us, verses 12 and uh, 12 and 13. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Outside the city was a sign of curse. Outside the gate was a sign of being away from the presence of God, the favorable presence. Christ is that curse for us. It says, therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp bearing reproach. For we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. And it is found in him. But he was the one who was cut off in our stead. And also, his cross work is what turns away the wrath of God. This is what you see in 1 John 2, 2, where it says, uh, it talks about how he doesn't just die for our sins, but for the sins of the world, as he was a propitiation for our sins. A propitiation is a big word. I understand that, but it's a biblical term. We need to understand what it means. And it just means the turning away the wrath of God. And that word, elasmos, which is propitiation, has the entire sacrificial system behind it. That entire sacrificial system points to the coming of Christ, who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. 
And as he has cut us, cut off for us outside the camp, he becomes a curse for us outside the camp. And as he dies on that cross, you know what he does? He turns away the wrath of God in our stead. That we in Christ do not have that wrath of God upon us, but we are accepted in the beloved and we have hope in him. We have hope in Christ. And we shouldn't miss the blessed reversals in God's word. And we'll close by reading Hosea 2.14. We all know about Hosea. We all know about the treachery of Israel, the northern kingdom, many years later after Achan. We see it with the, the imagery of Hosea and his wife, Gomer, who would become a harlot. And there's a lot of bride imagery. And we see this in verses 14 and 15. Notice verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. I will give her her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. Christ is the one who brings hope to people who are undeserving. And God is the one who turns the valley of trouble into a door of hope. Let us pray. Our gracious God, thank you again for your mercy and your grace towards your people. Thank you so much for the work of Christ, who is our propitiation, who is the one who expunges our sins, who is the one who turns away the wrath of God. And thank you for that promise that you will never leave us nor forsake us. Thank you for that promise that we are yours and we are no longer walking under the, the, the prince of the power of the air. We're no longer walking as sons of disobedience, but we are forgiven in Christ the Lord. And we ask that you would forgive us for uh, uh, the, the fatherly displeasure that we cause. Please forgive us for grieving the Holy Spirit, but we are thankful that the Holy Spirit can never be taken from us. Thank you that the Holy Spirit is a down payment, is a guarantee of the inheritance of the purchased, uh, a redemption that awaits us. Thank you, O oh God, that you are building your church. Thank you, O oh God, that you are filling your church. Thank you, O oh God, that you are sanctifying your people. Please forgive us for our, our covetousness. Please for, forgive us for not appreciating your goodness and your presence. Please forgive us uh, for not taking sin as seriously. But thank you that our, our lacks when it comes to sin is also forgiven in Christ the Lord. Thank you. All our sins are forgiven in Christ the Lord. In him there is mercy, in him there is salvation, in him there is forgiveness. And thank you for your church. Thank you for the advancement of it. Thank you for the discipline of it. And thank you for your word as you build your church. So be with us tonight, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.